Probably most of you know that Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. Its elevation is 29,029 feet above sea level, which is five and a half miles above sea level. Just to put that in context for you, if you went to Denver, the mile-high city, which has a lot of elevation, you would still need to go another four and a half miles straight up in the air to reach the elevation of the summit of Mount Everest. Climbing Mount Everest has been described by many as the journey of a lifetime. It is that big picture expedition that many people only hope to be able to go on. Recently, I looked into it to think, to consider whether it was possible for myself, and, and I found out a couple things. The average price at this time to climb Mount Everest is about $55,000. Not only that, but it takes at least about two months of time from late March until mid-May. I, I need to consider whether or not the administration would accept my faculty leave request uh, for those dates. Probably not. But the reason why it takes so long to climb Mount Everest is because it is a difficult journey even to get to base camp. But the reason why there's so much time as a part of this process is that it requires a month of, I, I tried to say this word, it is acclimatization. All right, acclimatization, and that, that just simply means the fact that the human body is not prepared to be at that kind of elevate, uh, elevation with the lack of atmospheric pressure, with the lack of oxygen in the air at that point. The human body uh, is not capable of handling that. In fact, there's something called elevation sickness that, that can happen if you fail to acclimate properly. It, it comes with serious health problems, including dizziness, difficulty breathing. Your brain can swell. Uh, fluid can begin leaking into your lungs. Uh, you can have great confusion. It, it can even produce coma and potentially, if it's serious enough, even death. And so the process of acclimatization is a process whereby you get to base camp at 17,500 feet. That is high in and of itself. That's higher than almost every other mountain in Europe. You get to base camp at 17,500 feet, and for a period of a month, you take a journey 2,000 miles up and then back to base camp. And then 3,500 uh, feet up. I said miles, feet up, and then back to base camp. And then 5,000 feet up and then back to base camp. And you do it with a, a sequence of, of timing and rest that all, is all a part of that. And then after your last ascent and descent, you wait for about a week, and then you're ready for the 11,500-foot trip up to the summit of Mount Everest. So with all of that being said, the cost and the time and the danger that is attached to that how many of you would still be interested in climbing Mount Everest? All right, there's some hands up here, some brave people. But remember, this has been called the journey of a lifetime, so really all of us should be interested in that. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of downside, but, but what's the reason why I mention Mount Everest? What does that have to do with the Christian life? Well, this morning, we're going to find ourselves in a text that brings us to a very similar spiritual point as base camp on Mount Everest. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3. 
the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And, and at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul prays a prayer for the Ephesian believers that stands at the crossroads between two very different, different sections of his letter. The first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians are about our spiritual identity through the gospel in Jesus Christ. By my count, the Apostle Paul uses the idea of in Christ or with Christ in those first three chapters. He uses that same phraseology 25 times. Then the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, are a call to walk worthy of that calling. There are at least 37 direct imperatives for the Christian life, commands for how we ought to live, how we ought to obey, how we ought to work, walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. And so between those two distinct sections, the section of identity, who we are in Jesus, and the section that launches out into a life lived for Jesus, stands our passage this morning. It is a pause. It is a divine base camp. And without spending time here, without receiving the truth that we find here, we cannot continue on the journey. I think you'll see that with me as we read the text together. With that in mind, let's read Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul says, for this cause, and he's speaking about what he's already just talked about. For this cause, I bow my knees under the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. This passage is not intended to teach doctrine. It's also not intended to give us instruction on Christian living. It's, it's a prayer. It's a prayer to God for the needs that we have as believers. It touches heaven, and I believe it should touch our hearts as it demonstrates to us something that is of a deeply personal nature the impact of the gospel on our lives going forward and living a life that matters from the perspective of eternity. If I were to give you one big idea this morning, it would simply be this, that God can do so much more in you than you know. God wants to do so much more in your life than you can comprehend. And I believe as we examine the text here today, some of these truths will come alive, and, and I trust that our hearts will be open to the working of God in us as he seeks to transform us and prepare us for the journey of the Christian life. 
This morning, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to consider it for yourself, personally. The question is this. What is God doing in your heart? What is he doing in your heart? Is your mind blanking right now? Are you scrambling for maybe something you read in your devotions? Are you, or perhaps something just floods into your mind? I know exactly what God is doing right now. I know exactly what he wants from me. I know exactly what I've been resisting. I know exactly what, what his spotlight is shining upon in my life right now. But, but I think all of us need to reflect upon what is God doing in our hearts right now. Are you okay with the status quo? Or do you want to know what he can do with you, in you, through you, and for his glory? And so as we launch out in our gospel identity, which is what the entire chapter has been, been, been preparing us for up to this point, and we begin a journey to walk worthy of our Lord and Savior, what resources do we need to welcome into our life? And we see several of them in our text this morning. First of all, we need the Father's help. We need the Father's help. Verse 14, for this cause, Paul says, I bow my knees. That is an expression of humble dependence. And I, and I think it resonates with us, this coming to God in neediness. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. So Paul prays to God the Father, and and really this whole prayer is beautifully Trinitarian. We're going to see the Father's will that is being engaged. We're going to see the Spirit's might that is unleashed, and we're going to see the the, the presence of Jesus Christ that is available for us. But Paul begins with the Father's will. And the implication is this, is that our prayers are part of God's sovereign decision-making. So here is the Father that, that gives all good things. And when we come to him in prayer, his decision of what to give and what to impart and who to bless it upon is, is our prayer is included in that, and there's mystery there, but we believe that by faith. We also see that God is addressed as the ultimate Father. It's an interesting construction. It says he's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the whole family on heaven and on earth. He is the Father of all. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of fathers. He is the ultimate Father. He is the ultimate provider. He is the ultimate security. He is the ultimate giver. Everything that we need comes through him. So how much more should we come to him? Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And so Jesus offers that as our prerogative as the children of God. I probably shouldn't say what I'm about ready to say because it might be able to be used against me. That's my wife is now cringing. All right. No, it's not going to be that bad. 
so it's a little secret. I've got my, my son Brad is in here, and, and he may already know this, but, but the reality is, is I, I love being generous with my children. Brad's like, what? That's news. Um, I love being generous. You know, every once in a while, they're like, oh, wow, thank you, Dad. And I'm like, I think I received more joy from giving that to you than you did in receiving it. It is a blessing to be able to be a dad, to be able to care for the children that God has given you, to be able to be generous and be sacrificial at times for their, for their good. But the problem is, is that, is that my resources are limited. My bank account is finite. But what resources does the father of fathers have to draw from? Look at verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. He, he only has the bank of the riches of his glory to draw from. And, and we say the word only, and we understand that, that, that only with the glory of God attached to it is an infinite well that, that the resources of generosity of our Father come from. It speaks to his inexhaustible power and our Father's joyous, willing generosity with us as his children. And, and I think if we really understood these concepts, it would revolutionize our prayer life. And, and it, would un, it would help us to understand that our dependence is a wonderful opportunity to reach out to the one who loves us and gives generously. And so we, we need the Father's help. And we also see that this help comes in the person of the Holy Spirit. The points in the message this morning are going, going to be progressive. It's not like we, I'm going to give one point and then moving on from that one, let's do point number two. They build upon each other. They're intended, they're intended to go together. So we see, number two, that we need the Spirit's strength. Again, the book of Ephesians is full of the Spirit's ministry, and it breaks down in the two halves that we talked about. In the first half of Ephesians, in, in chapter 1, we see that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In chapter 2, we have access by one Spirit unto the Father. We also, in chapter 2, are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. These are secure relationship pictures that we have in the Holy Spirit. We have a position in the Spirit, through the Spirit, that is absolutely secure. And then the last chapters describe our, lived, our life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We grieve not the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. Chapter 6, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And so the first aspect of the Spirit's ministry, we already have, we already possess in full measure. We are, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But the second aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry, that must be lived out. Now, it's, it's what he's doing in us in the famous verse, uh, Ephesians 5.18, where it tells us to be filled with the Spirit. That is a passive imperative. It is a command for us 
but it's passive because it is not something that we do for ourselves. To be filled with the Spirit is to allow ourselves to be controlled to the Spirit by yielding to the Spirit. And so we have these two sides of it. The, the, the ministry of the Spirit we already have and the ministry of the Spirit that is being lived out in our life. And that's why today we need the Spirit's strength. Verse 16 continues. So the Father grants us according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. So Paul uses the word for strengthened, which actually speaks of inner strength. It means to become strong psychologically, to become powerful in an internal way. This is the word that was used of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, where it tells us that Jesus grew in uh, and became strong in spirit. There was an internal strength and power and fortitude. And so in this construction here, we are strengthened in that way with might. Strengthened with might. So you've got two concepts that are brought together to to reduplicate and emphasize that the Spirit of God gives all the power that we need. Do you ever feel, this is probably maybe the worst rhetorical question I could ask college students. Do you ever feel completely wiped out? How many of you have somebody sitting next to you right now that is a little bit too wiped out? All right, don't, don't, raise, your, don't raise your hand. Whew, I could get dangerous real quickly. Just Instead of raising your hand, just take it and go, boom. All right. So, so, um, maybe you feel, or maybe, maybe you resonate with Bilbo when he said these words. He says, I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. Like, yes, that's my testimony as a college student. Think, think about what you need. Think about what you naturally say, what I need is, and you fill in the blank. Maybe it's like another cup of coffee. Maybe it's a nap. Maybe like what I need is I need to get to the weekend, and I need for my roommates to cooperate so that I can sleep until noon. Or maybe you're like, none of that will do it. I need Spring break. That's, that's what I'm like. That is the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, those refresh the body. Those refresh the mind. But what about the inner man? This inner person, one commentator describes it as the interior of our being, the seat of personal consciousness, our moral being, It is the focal point. It is the center of a person's life. And and this is what we read in this prayer. It is the Spirit who strengthens us at the core of who we are. By the way, could it be that we are so worn down because our inner person has no Holy Spirit power. I I think even for Christians, even for Christians, it's physical exhaustion. It's emotional exhaustion. It is mental exhaustion. But what about the spiritual exhaustion? 
I think there's a good cross-reference in Scripture that indicates that this is an important component to our endurance as human beings. Proverbs 18, verse 14, it says, The spirit of a man will sustain him in infirmity. So a person is in, in, in infirmity. They're sick. They're worn out. They're, they're, they're bedridden. And it is the spirit of man that sustains him. And then it says, but a wounded spirit, who can bear? Even when you're healthy, a wounded spirit just drains you. Could it be that maybe this is what we should identify as, as a great need in our life to have the spirit refresh and recharge us in the inner man? So we need the Father's help. We need the spirit's strength. And that leads us to our third need, And that is that we need Christ's presence. And the Spirit is producing this in us. In verse 17, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Christ dwelling in your hearts, by the way, is not speaking about initial indwelling. It's not talking about salvation. That's already been implied by the first three chapters that deal with our identity in Christ but rather this is speaking of our ongoing relationship with him. This is his presence, his nearness, our fellowship with him. I'm not sure anyone could be a Christian without at some point in their Christian life just thinking, if only... If only Jesus could be present, physically present with me right now. If I could look into his eyes, if I could hear his voice, if he could encourage me in my time of need, if only Jesus could be here. It's what we long for as Christians. We long for that day when we will see our Savior face to face. But in this life, this very thing is offered to us by faith. And so this is Holy Spirit-empowered faith resulting in our trust. And so I want you to see the perspective here that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is not a given. This kind of relationship, this kind of nearness, this kind of fellowship is not just our possession by us just being passive about it. This is our possession by faith, a spirit-produced, human-actuated faith we must live this out in our life and so christ dwells in our hearts as we live by faith as we include jesus in our day as we believe that jesus is the most important part of my choices of my thoughts of my relationships of of the future plans that i have Jesus is included in all of that. And you're like, well, how do I do that? By faith. By knowing that he will never leave me or forsake me. By knowing that he is with me. By knowing that he desires partnership with me in my life. And by, and by including him in faith. In my thoughts and my motives. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith as we worship him through listening to his word and submitting to his will. Listen to what Jesus himself says right before 
he goes to the cross. In John 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him, loving Christ, keeping his commandments, making him the priority of my moments throughout the day. Just like every Christian has longed for the physical presence of Jesus, every Christian also knows the discouragement of living an entire day, putting your head on the pillow, and then realizing you have not thought about Jesus one time. Or that he was few and far between as you considered your your plans and made your decisions. We love him, keep his words, and he makes his abode with us. And, and I want to point out that this is not duty-driven faith. It's not the kind of faith that says, I'm saved and let me head straight to the mountain of walking worthy for the Lord because that's what I need to do. This, rather, is the kind of faith that stops and says, why should Christ be such a priority in my life? And, and the scripture answers that question. Like, like this is not just a, a duty. Well, I need to include Jesus. There's a reason why here. Look at verse 17. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And then it continues. And it says that ye being rooted and grounded in love. And that just speaks to our firm identity. We are planted in Christ's love. Our foundation is based upon his love. We are secure. We are not working for that position. We have the life in Christ. But it continues. We're rooted and grounded in love that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. This is something that I need the Spirit's power to comprehend. This is not something that is seen with natural eyes. This must be seen by the eyes of faith. This must be something that that God gives us a new perspective, that God works in us to help us to understand the full dimensions of Christ's love. So what is the breadth of Christ's love? This, all of these four directions that are mentioned here are just describing the fullness of it. But, but we can picture the breadth of Christ's love as his hands stretched from nail to nail. And also the picture that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. What about the length of Christ's love? Well, we know that he loved us in eternity past. And there will never be a moment in eternity future where he will stop loving us. What about the depth of Christ's love? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved me when I was a rebel. He loved me when I was his enemy. The depth of his love reaches down and and cleanses the very depth of my sin debt. He takes all of my guilt, all of my guilt, and takes it away on the cross. The depth of his love is enough for my failings and frailty today as a Christian. The depth of his love is enough to pick me up every single time I fall by his grace. What about the height of Christ's love? Well, he loves me into the very presence of God. He loves me and makes me holy. 
And he is not ashamed to call me brother. Oh, the depth and the breadth and the length and the height of the love of God. By the way, it says here, it tells us that to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, and that does not mean that the love of Christ is unknowable. It only means that the love of Christ is limitless. And no matter how much you know it, there's always more to know. As much as how much you love it, there's always, there's always more to love. For all eternity, we will have an ever-expanding awareness of the depth of Christ's love for us and the height of Christ's love for us and the breadth and the width of Christ's love for us. And so we need the Father's help. We need the Spirit's strength. We need Christ's presence. And finally, we need God's fullness. In verse 19, it says that ye might be filled with all the fullness. That's the same Greek word, that you might be filled with all the filledness of God. Now, we've already seen each member of the Godhead in their activity in our lives, but right now we just pause and we remember that it's not just what the Father does for us. It's not just what the Spirit does for us or the Son does for us in his love. This passage, the end of this in verse 19, is talking about our true Trinitarian relationship. It is Father, it is Son, it is Spirit, and it is us. We have a relationship with the Godhead that is incomprehensible. It is a true Trinitarian relationship. Jesus previewed this relationship for us in John chapter 17, and you can see the beautiful picture of, of Him and the Father, and the Father in us, and all of us being one. As humans, we are on a quest for fulfillment. Every one of us, we're on a quest for, for, for fulfillment. In fact, I would suggest to you today that every wrong choice we make, the sin that we give into, the destructive habits that we allow in our life, every single one of those is a quest for a moment of fulfillment. It's a lie, it's a deception. But that's at the heart of it. And so as Christians, we rightly understand that God is the only one that can bring true fulfillment. He created us. We're, we're made for relationship with him. But I, but I think sometimes we assume that being a quote-unquote good Christian will result in God giving us all the things that we need to be satisfied. Let me make this really simple. We do not need anything to be satisfied. We don't get fulfillment ultimately from God. We get our ultimate fulfillment in God and Him in us. He is the one that fulfills us. This is exactly what Paul says in Colossians 2, 9, and 10, where he says, In Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to be fulfilled? Do you want to be content? Then, then be filled with all the fullness of God, as Paul expresses it in this beautiful prayer. There's a couple objections. Our first objection to this is, well, are you sure it will work? This sounds kind of big, too big maybe. Well, that's exactly why verse 20 exists. 
Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, no matter how much I've tried to express the bigness of it, it's not big enough. And God is able to do it in us. Remember, it's his power. It's not our striving. It's his power. This is our moment of him infusing in us this strength that we need. The second objection is, well, doesn't this seem a little bit self-centered? Oh, I want to be fulfilled, and I want the perfect relationship with God, and I want the Spirit's power. And verse 21 answers that. Unto him be glory. This is God's desire for you, and he is glorified in it. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. These verses are a prayer. There's really no imperatives that we've really given. There's some implications, I believe. And I want to just leave you with three applications as you think about what can I do with this text? What can I do with this prayer? The first thing I would say is this, that you're saved. Do not think that you can just power yourself through the Christian life by doing stuff for God without this reality being in you of God's power. If you were ever to climb at Mount Everest, you would learn that above 26,000 feet is something called the death zone. The death zone has so little oxygen that when the human body gets above that elevation, you begin to die. Your cells begin to die. The clock is ticking. Now, now if, you've, if you've recharged at base camp and you've gone through the process of acclimatization, you can, you can do it with full health. However, if you take too long or if you haven't gone through the process, it can be very dangerous. In fact, on May 22nd, 2019, just a couple years ago in climbing season in Everest, there was a, a high volume on May 22nd, there was a high volume of climbers. 250 climbers on one day were trying to summit Mount Everest. Because so many climbers were there, they had to wait in single-file lines to go through some of the narrow uh, uh, trails that they went on. Some climbers waited hours to begin their journey, waiting in the death zone. And, And there are multiple factors, I'm sure, but one of the factors was the added time in the death zone. And on that one day, 11 climbers perished. What is the point of that? Us getting saved and then being like, I can do this. I can power through it. I got this. I can obey the rules. I can do the right things. I can look like a good Christian. That is the death zone. You cannot live there without powering up in the base camp of the presence of God on a daily and regular basis. We desperately need that. And by the way, if you ever feel like the leadership in Maranatha, the faculty, staff, and administration just want you to look like good Christians and live in the death zone, that could not be further from the truth. We desire nothing more than what Paul prays right here, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God and these manifestations of the Trinitarian investment in you would be real. That's the first application. Second 
And third, are really brief. Number two, make a habit of praying this way for your life. Be needy for God, ask for his fullness, and respond to his work in you. Be desperate for God. Be desperate for that divine base camp. And then number three, pray this way for others. Who are you investing in spiritually? What would happen to your friend group if Christ's presence was a necessary inclusion? What would your relationships be like if they were strengthened by the Spirit's empowerment? So today we stand at a crossroads of our gospel identity, which is secure in Christ through faith in him for salvation. And the mountain of living for Christ and serving Christ and living a life that is worthy of the calling which we've been called. So I just ask you the question once again, what is God doing in your hearts? Lord, I can't end this sermon without just asking the Father of Fathers to do this in my life and in the life of all of those in here this morning. Would you minister to us where we are? Lord, if there's anyone in here that does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that they've seen a beautiful picture of the resources that we have in Christ. Maybe their false views of what a Christian is have fallen away and you've opened their understanding. But Lord, for those of us that know you, would you empower us by your Spirit? Would you give us the presence of Jesus and would we be filled with all the fullness of God? That's what we need right now and for today and going forward. And we commit it to you for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.